The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right, uh, again, good morning, church. And my name is Vaughn. I'm a covenant partner here in GCC. And as I said earlier, it is my first time in opening up the Word of God in this congregation, um, trusting in the Lord <laughs> that He will actually do His work. So, one moment. All right, it's, it's Father's Day today, right? Yes. And happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. And because it's Father's Day, it's right that we celebrate, we honor our fathers, right? And so our message for today, as we know already, will be the way that it will be the series still in Nehemiah. So we will turn to the Lord and, yeah, um, what a Father's Day passage, actually. But if you come to think of it, yeah, it will speak to us. And I pray that the Lord will speak to us today. So our time for today, um, we, will, we will talk about Nehemiah 10, um, chapter 10 up to 13, verses 1 to 3. I would like to share and point out to you this morning regarding this theme, about responding to God's faithfulness and living as God's covenant people. So before we talk about it, why don't we turn to the Lord in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people, redeemed by your blood, by the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we gather to hear from your word, would you speak to us? Would you open our hearts and our minds? And would you do what only you can do in our lives? That is to change our hearts and make us worship you, obey you, and honor you. May Christ be exalted in our midst today. Open our eyes that we might see your glory through your word. And it's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you, for example, what does it mean to be a Malaysian? <laughs> yeah? See, there, there is a lot of way to answer that question, right? You can talk about characteristics. You can even talk about... You know, um, well, what do you mean? What does it mean to be a Malaysian? If you're born as a Malaysian citizen, then you are a Malaysian, right? Or maybe some of you would point out, hey, or maybe not in Malaysia, but in other countries, you can gain a status of citizenship if you stay long enough in the land, and then if uh, you obey, you know, you um, meet certain rules, then, yeah, depending on the laws of the land, you can be granted a citizenship. Now, you might be wondering, why, why are we talking about these things? Well, in some ways, our passage today talks about um, on, on themes of identity, or of being a people, or of, uh, of the law, right? So, as we have already seen, coming out of a Babylonian exile, we can only imagine how much of the Israelites' sense of identity was lost uh, during their time in exile. No wonder why when they read the law in, in um, Ezra chapter 8, they mourned and wept instead of rejoicing in that um, otherwise would have been a joyous celebration. And we, we saw in chapter 9, as, pre, as, as Nick preached to us last Sunday, how they responded, uh, the Levites responded in prayer of repentance. It's a twofold confession of God's faithfulness to them and their 
unfaithfulness to him. And they recognized that. That's why in chapter 9, verse 38, we read this. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. And here's where our passage this morning comes from, or comes in, in chapter 10. Immediately following their prayers of repentance and confession, the people of Israel made a firm covenant to live the Mosaic Covenant, the law of Moses. So we look at how Nehemiah led Israel into a covenant renewal guided by God's law. We'll see how they commit themselves to live faithfully as God's covenant people in their particular place and in their particular time. I'd say that they set a pattern of example for us today here, believers in Gospel City Church in the city of Kuala Lumpur, on how we too must seek to, seek to faithfully live as God's covenant people in our time and our place. As we have been saying in the sermon series, it's, got, it's right for us to yearn for the new Jerusalem, to seek renewal in our world today, and to rest knowing that only Christ can and will make all things new. And so this morning, the big question that we have is, how can we live faithfully as God's covenant people? I'll share with you today four marks of a faithful covenant community. A faithful covenant community is a community that remembers and lives out their identity as God's people. A community that reorients their lives for God's purposes. A community that rejoices in God's renewing work and reforms continually according to God's word. To help us remember, so the four points are remember, reorient, rejoice, and reform. Let's jump right into the first point. A faithful covenant community is a community that remembers and lives out their identity as God's people. In the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 10, we witness a remarkable moment as they gather for covenant renewal. And we see two parts. In verses 1 to 27, we see the leaders sealing this covenant document. And then on verses, in verses 28 to 39, we will see the rest of the people who pledged also to live out the covenant. Let's consider the significance of the list of the names of these leaders who affixed their, um, their signatures or their seals. Nehemiah as the governor takes the lead, followed by the priests, the Levites, and the chiefs of the people. You might remember in Nehemiah 9.34, when they were praying, the Levites acknowledged that their leaders, their fathers, failed to keep God's law. And at this important juncture in their history, they set to make a change. And they're making a decisive turn to commit their lives and to be faithful to the Lord in response to God's mercy. Now look again. Look at those names in 1 to 27. And here's where it might get a little bit personal for us. What if instead of these people whom we don't know, you read the names of our elders, the names of our fathers, the names of the people who lead us, then suddenly we will pay much more attention, right? Because whatever they're signing up for, 
as their followers, as part of their family, we're going to be bound into the same obligations. And I think that's what this section is telling us. It's showing the um, seriousness and the commitment of these leaders to set their families and household into the right direction, into obedience, into worshiping the Lord. Essentially, um, these leaders representing their people is saying, we're sending a message to the future generations. And in the words of Joshua, they're essentially saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now moving on to the next part in this section in verses 28 to 39, we encounter, and it's written that the rest of the people, they too made an oath to live out their covenant identity as God's people. They also made specific commitments to pursue faithfulness to the Lord. And this concludes with their resounding declaration in verse 39, we will not neglect the house of God. Notice the words in verses 28 to 29. They join with their brothers and nobles into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Now, I would assert that the rest of the people are essentially saying to the Lord, you will be our God and we will be your people. Notice the words curse and oath. Doesn't it remind us of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 where it talks about the blessings um, for disobedience and then of blessings for obedience and the curses for the people's disobedience. We see that at that time, Moses was also leading the people into a covenant renewal before they go to the promised land. And this time, having been back from exile at this poignant point of their history as the people of God, they're also making the same spirit of covenant renewal. In essence, I'd like to propose that what they're actually doing is that they are remembering their identity as God's people in light of God's law. I would say that this is a response to God's mercy and also an act of faith in God's promises. In Jeremiah 32, verses 37 to 38, the Lord himself said through the prophet, Behold, I will gather them from all countries to which I drove them in my anger and wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And look at this. Listen to this. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, these people didn't choose God first. God chose them first and planned ahead of time to confirm them and mercifully gather them as his people. And I think, at least in part, that's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 10. So out of their acceptance of their covenant identity flowed their commitment to pursue obedience to the law of Moses. In verses 30 to 39, you will see their specific commitments Essentially, these are the obligations of the covenant and how they interpreted it for their time. 
They commit not to intermarry with the people of the land. They promise to keep the Sabbath day by forbidding business transactions uh, on that holy day. They pledge to give the temple tax, or in other words, to support the temple. They promised uh, to, to do these specific duties. And maybe we can sum it up like this. Essentially, they are committing to a lifestyle of holiness and worship unto the Lord. In this section, we see the recurring theme of the law and how it's guided the people in shaping their identity as a people of God. And I think this should also resonate with us, the Christians today. Um, You see, obedience that comes from a worshiping heart in response to God's mercy is a far cry from legalism. Even though we live in a time we're in, we're operating in the covenant of grace, our obedience to the Lord still matters. And may I encourage you, let us seek to live as God's people in our time. Let's remember who we are in Christ. And I think a tangible way that we can apply this is to think about church membership. Our brothers and sisters, dear covenant partners, we signed a covenant agreement. It's not a new set of law, but it's a commitment we're doing to obey the Lord in our time. May we prayerfully think about that. What did we sign up for? To be nurtured and to be nurturing, to be equipped and to be equip and equip others to be transformed and be an agent of transformation. Maybe we can think through what, what obligations might we be neglecting and how can we stir one another in obedience to the Lord. If you're here today and you're not yet part of a local church, not yet a covenant partner in GCC, may I encourage you, if you are professing faith in Christ, it's, it's almost impossible to live out your life as a Christian alone. So be plugged in. Be part of a church. So let's remember and live out our identity as God's people. Now, let's move on to our second point. A faithful covenant community reorients their lives for God's purposes. So remember, reorient. Now in chapters 11 to 12, we'll see that the Israelite post-exilic community are actually putting their promises in action, even though it's largely a list of names. But, yeah, let's see and observe a a few things. In chapter 11, the leaders, in verses 1 to 24, it talks about the leaders in Jerusalem. And then in 25 to 36, the villages outside Jerusalem. In chapter 12, it will give us a list of legitimate priests in verses 1 up to 26. In 11 verse 1, we read that the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but it is still largely unpopulated. We saw, when we, we saw this situation in Nehemiah 7. The walls were already built, but the city was still largely broken down and, and there were no houses yet. Jerusalem, though, was supposed to be a city with a vibrant community who maintained a lifestyle of worship centered on the house of God. Remember their covenant in chapter, commitment in chapter 10? We will not neglect the house of God. But you see, the house of God is in Jerusalem. And it's, it's barely populated. So you see the problem. 
Now, people are not moving in perhaps for two reasons. One, reasons of safety. Even though the walls are built, you see, Jerusalem is the capital. If enemies attack, it will be the first target. Second, Jerusalem, or Israel in that time, is an agricultural economy. Moving into the city will mean smaller spaces to plant their crops. So they will mean less income. Now, in, so how did, how did they solve the issue? Nehemiah led the people in, and the priests, perhaps. They cast lots. They trusted in the sovereignty of God to choose who would move. Um, and 10% of the population moved to Jerusalem. 90% stayed back in their towns. Trusting in the Lord's providence, these people willingly reoriented their lives and made significant adjustments for the house of God, for the cause of God in their time. They were seeking God's kingdom, as it were, and his righteousness. In a sense, the people tithed themselves unto the Lord. And as a result, the people blessed them. They blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem, in verse 2. In chapter 11, 3 to 24, we see the list of names who, who actually made the move. Beginning with the sons of Judah who lived in Jerusalem, verses 4 to 6. The sons of Benjamin in um, verses 7 to 9. Now Judah and Benjamin were the original settlers of these lands. These were their inheritance. But talking about Judah, it's also important that Judah comes first. Remember, um, when Jacob were blessing his sons, he gave Judah a place of prominence and he said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. And in fact, that's what's, what happened. Judah, out of the family of Judah come lines of kings, right? And in fact, the Messiah, our Lord, came from the same line. Now, at that time, they were still waiting for the Messiah. And I wonder what was, pro- what was going on in, in the people's mind that time. You know, seeing the mighty men of Judah going back to Jerusalem. Might they be thinking or wondering, from which of these families will our Messiah come? We can only imagine the anticipation that they had. Now, moving on to the other list of names. The priests are listed in 10 to 14, followed by the Levites in 15 to to 18. And then the other temple workers all the way to verse 24. Notice the varied roles in these verses. Everyone had a vital role to play in the restoration of worship in Jerusalem. In verse 1, they called, or the verse called Jerusalem a holy city. Also in verse 18, and it's a rare term um, to, to be designated for, the, for Jerusalem. How did it become holy? It's only because the presence of the Lord is, is, in, this, is in the temple or in the city. So I think this is a statement that's made in hope, and in faith they made a commitment to the house of their God. And many times in this verse as well, you will see the term the house of God, and I think you see the point. They're essentially making these adjustments. These people are volunteering their lives to move to Jerusalem. And now, as we move to verses 25 to 36, we'll see the villages outside Jerusalem. After listing the names of citizens, a while all of a sudden mention the names of location. 
Well, one commentator said that perhaps it was done to show that there was a widespread of geographic support um, in this repopulating effort. And it's also clear that the majority of the support were coming from godly people in the towns of Judah and Benjamin. Now down to chapter 12, we see another list of names. But this time, it focuses on the priests, a line of legitimate priests and Levites. If Jerusalem was to be a holy city, the role of priests and Levites were vital. They are the only ones authorized to minister in the temple. And we also see that temple singers should be trained to function in the temple according to David's instruction. Um, this section in chapter 12 has three parts. The priests and the Levites in the time of Joshua, in the genealogy of the high priests and the Levites in the time of Joachim. Now bookending this section are the leaders who returned from exile, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah. We see it in, chapter, in verses 1 and also in verse 26. We can see their connection in the storyline of God in the Bible. They were part of one people, one story. God is not yet done in the, at this time. Together they wait for the fulfillment of God's promises, especially in the coming of the great high priest, the king of kings. Now, let's observe the important role of priests in also leading the people in worship. In verse 17, the Levites from the line of Asaph was mentioned. Mataniah, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. Here in 12 verse 28, they were in charge of songs of thanksgiving. Now, in this section, we saw how they reoriented their lives according to God's purposes. And as Christians, let me point out, we have something greater than the temple to center our lives on. We have a person, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and he's offered his life once and for all to redeem us. He has made us a people, a priesthood of believers, and we must proclaim his excellencies, and we should live lives that are centered and reoriented for his cause and for his gospel. So remember, reorient down to our third point, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord's renewing work. And that's what we'll see in chapter 12, the latter part, where they made the dedication of the wall. It's a momentous point of celebration of the Lord's renewing work in the lives of his people. We saw this kind of celebration in Ezra 6. Um, chapter, three, uh, chapter 12, 27 to 43 narrates the celebration. First, they gather their worship leaders. They summoned all the Levites, the singers, and their sons nearby. They joyfully gather to, um, with joy, with gladness, and thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres. Can you imagine what a joyful gathering must have been? Thinking through what they have encountered in rebuilding the walls. But before we get caught up in the celebration, let's pay attention to verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves purified the people, the gates, and the wall. You see, they needed to set themselves apart for the pure worship of God. These rites, the purification rites, were regulations of worship set by the Lord in the law of Moses. It is to communicate the holiness of the Lord. And it also shows the people's need to be holy. You see, even if they are legitimate sons of Israel, legitimate priests, 
there still remains their need for purification. Now, in verses 31 to 42, we see Nehemiah narrating these events in the first person. He said, Then I brought up the leaders of Judah unto the wall. Nehemiah divided the people into two choirs, right? One choir going south from the dunghill, um, and then the, the other group was led by Ezra, while the other was joined by Nehemiah. They went all around the city with celebrating, with singing, with celebration, thanking the Lord for his faithfulness. And as they go around the city walls, passing through the, its different sections, maybe we can even imagine, perhaps there were even tears of joy in recalling how the good hand of the Lord was upon them as they did the rebuilding. Look at verse 37. Not long ago, you see the fountain gate, right? It's mentioned there. It's now built. Not long ago when Nehemiah first inspected the walls, he couldn't even get past that section. You see the Lord's faithfulness. The walls are built. And the people are attributing this great success unto the wall. You remember the taunts of their enemies when they were building. That even if a fox would, would set its feet on the wall, it will rumble or break down. You see great choirs now, you know, walking around these walls. And it can only be the work of God changing the taunts of their enemies into a praise and a celebration of the faithfulness of the Lord. This great success was attributed to him. Their God was the point of their rejoicing. Therefore, in verse 43, it said, They offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God has made them rejoice with great joy. The women, the children also rejoice. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. As we come to the end of the chapter 12, we see that Nehemiah and the people were organizing for the continuity of temple worship. Whatever they promised in chapter 10, remember, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. In chapter 11, it's like 10, 11, and 12 is setting the stage for this momentum a momentous celebration. Whatever they promised, now that worship is restored, they did all their commitments. Whatever they promised, they did it out of joy. They gave their produce, their offerings, their support for the Levites. They gathered everything in the storerooms. They performed their sacrifices and purification. Now, I want us to look at verse 45 and 47. It says, They sang songs of thanksgiving according to the command of David. And his son. I hope we pick it up. Their storyline is now being joined to their longer history. Notice how it mentioned that this kind of worship also happened during the days of Zerubbabel. There are, there's like a hundred, almost a hundred year gap between Zerubbabel's time and then their time. But you see what God is doing here? He's restoring his people. You see the work of God in the history of the nation of Israel. This tells a story of spiritual renewal. And this also points to a future hope of greater, greater fulfillment of God's promise in the coming of Messiah. As we come to an end in chapter 12, we see how they celebrated and rejoiced in the Lord's renewing work. Likewise, we should rejoice in God's renewal in our life. Now, 
before we move to chapter 13, real quick, guided by God's word and, and God's hand, actually, Nehemiah accomplished good things. Let's not miss that. He led the people toward the right direction into obedience to the law of God. But you see, Nehemiah, no matter how great a leader he is, he's still not the Messiah. No, the walls are up. The worship is restored. But we don't have the manifest presence of the Lord at that time. So even though there are parts of God's promises that were fulfilled in their time, their messianic hope, the hope of being freed from their oppressors still lingers. And also, they are still surrounded by, by their enemies. And that's where the fourth point comes in. As we go to chapter 13, we will see the need to reform continually according to God's word. In this last point, we'll look at only verses 1 to 3. We, we read here and we see that they come back to the word of God, the law of God, and they see the need for further reformation. And they read the law in the hearing of the people. And what did they learn? That there should be no Ammonite or Moabite that should ever enter or that should enter the assembly of God. We also can read this prohibition in Deuteronomy 23, verses uh, 3 to 5. There were two reasons that they are told why they should ban these people from among their presence. First one being, the Moabites and the Ammonites did not meet the people with bread and water in, on the way as the people came out of Egypt. And second, these Ammonite people, these pagan people hired Balaam, pagan prophet to curse them in their wandering time. Now let's not miss the point here. The prohibition, oh, or these Ammonites people and Moabites were not only apathetic to God's people, they were fundamentally opposed to God's purposes and to God's people. We see this in their futile attempt to hire Balaam to curse these wandering um, Israelites. Now, if you remember in Genesis, God promised Abraham that what? That he will bless his seed, his offspring, his descendants. And God even made the promise to bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. So you see, in this futile attempt to actually reverse that, it shows a fundamental opposition to what God is doing and so, if you're thinking it's just racial discrimination, it's not. <laughs> right? It's very relevant in our time today. It's not. Um, I hope you also see that it's not an unfair prohibition. There's mercy that I would like to point out to you, even in this situation. Do you remember Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite, but then she was grafted into the people of God. You see, there is mercy even for a pagan who turns her heart from idols to worshiping the living God. And it's important, um, in verse 3, 
going back to Nehemiah, it's important that the people obeyed and separated themselves from foreign descent. Now let's talk about the issue of the seed or the offspring of Israel. Why, why does this seed need to be pure? Remember, we pointed out that at this point, the Messiah has not yet come. And out of this seed, will the Messiah come from? And if they mix with other races, they will be jeopardizing the only hope that they have to be freed from their oppressors. So the need for reformation continues. The need for renewal according to God's word continues. You see, at this point in their time, like I mentioned already, there are still problems that needed to be addressed. They were still surrounded by their enemies. They have Nehemiah, but he's not the Messiah. And maybe in some sense we can resonate with them. We recognize that they were living in an already not yet situation. In the same way today as Christians, we also live in an already not yet. We've seen greater fulfillment of God's promises in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We know him to be our Lord. We are his people, his bride, right? But even today as Christians, we struggle to live as God's people. We want to obey him, but you know, it's not always that we remember our, our identity in Him. It's not always that we reform and reorient our lives for His purposes. And because of that, sometimes we find it hard to rejoice in the Lord's renewing work. You know, we still live in a world full of sin, brokenness, we still wait for our king to come back and finally restore everything. You know your sinful hearts. Even the best of our intentions are tainted by sin. And there is an ongoing need for renewal, reformation, restoration in light of God's word. And if today you are here and you are not a Christian, maybe even if you're not a Christian. You see the brokenness in the world today. You see the brokenness also in your life. Maybe you tried to change. You see the need to change. You tried your best, but you just can't. May I point you to Christ? Believe in the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience to the will of God. He lived a life we can never live. On that cross, he was punished by God like a rebel and died the death that you deserve, that you and I deserve. He rose again so that he can give us life through his spirit. And he would clothe you, he would clothe us with his righteousness that he afforded through his perfect sacrifice, his blood, if we come to him, if you come to him in repentance. Dear brothers and sisters in GCC, let's remember we orient and reform according to God's word. In closing, let me just point out that, you see, the problem is not that we don't know these things, for most of us maybe. 
It's not that we don't know, but it's not, it's, we just don't do it. So the question is why? Why can't we live faithfully to the Lord all the time? Now, I don't know to pretend the specific answers. I don't know your hearts. But I know this. Christ alone can change our hearts and make, make us faithful to Him. Let me encourage you by this passage in Hebrews 12, 1-2. Let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Let's keep coming back to the word and see him, see how beautiful, how glorious he is, how faithful and wonderful God is in the fulfillment of the promises that which he has made long ago until it's all fulfilled in him. You see, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah who redeemed his people. The church, through his sacrifice, we are his bride he purifies his church through his word. He is the promised seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sacrificed himself once for all. As the priest of the better covenant, he mediated the new covenant in his blood. He is the Lion of Judah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He, he reigns forever. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. He stands now in heaven as our high priest, praying for us, interceding for us, willing and able to sympathize in our weakness. And he will one day return to make all things new. And we will dwell with him in the new city, the new Jerusalem, where there will be no more temple, there will be no more walls. There will be no more sin, suffering. We can behold him in his beauty. We can behold him in the beauty of his holiness without sin, without disintegrating in his presence. I'm excited for that. And let's move toward that direction, trusting the Lord. Let's remember our identity in Christ. Reorient our lives for his purposes. Rejoice in the Lord's work of renewal. Keep reforming and conforming our lives to God's word and resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let's yearn for the new Jerusalem, seek renewal in our world today, knowing and resting that only Christ can and will make all things new. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are good you're faithful, you're awesome, and you're wonderful. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to keep our eyes focused on worshiping you, beholding you, seeing the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And as we, as we behold you in your glory, may you change us in our hearts from one degree of glory to another. We trust in your renewing words in our lives. And we rest in you. Come and bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.